This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast that features lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Good evening and welcome. I'm Linda Hawes Clever. I'm a volunteer with KALW, the National Public Radio Station, uh, 91.7 on your FM dial. And Cal Performances and KALW are thrilled to welcome you to the first of seven exciting speaker events that are planned for for 2019 and 2020. The unrivaled political insight of Maggie Haberman make her one of today's most influential voices in national affairs journalism. The New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning journalist offers a riveting look into the Trump White House and into the fast changing currents of the political waters, as well as the changing perceptions of journalism itself across the country. She covered City Hall for the New York Daily News and the 2008 U.S. presidential campaign and other races for the New York Post. She also wrote about national affairs as a senior reporter for Politico. Maggie and her team at the New York Times received the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for their coverage of the Trump administration and alleged Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. She also won the Aldo Beckman Award from the White House Correspondents Association. Maggie's stories on covering a contentious administration offer a revealing insider's look at what is sure to be known as our country's most explosive era of journalism. And I have just a story to tell that happened today. She gave me permission to say this. I was on a conference call, and I said, I have to end at 4 o'clock And they said, why? And I said, because I'm going to be introducing Maggie Haberman. And one fellow said, wow, I follow her on Twitter. She's not afraid to say, Trump said this and is not true. Please join me in welcoming Maggie Haberman. She will welcome your questions afterwards. And the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism, Ed Wasserman, will officiate that. Um, Thank you for coming. Good evening, and I hope you can all hear me okay. Thank you for having me. It is really an honor to be here. Uh, It's it's a wonderful institution, and it's an honor always to talk about why we do what we do and how we do it at a moment when democracies are under siege and the work of journalists is vital. Specifically, I want to talk to you about what it is like and has been like being a journalist covering President Trump how I happen to get where I am, and where things might be headed over the next 13 months. Before I begin, I would be remiss if I didn't note at the outset the extraordinary moment that the country is in. We are simply put in uncharted waters. Two whistleblowers have met with the Inspector General in relation to President Trump's phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine on July 25th. One of those whistleblowers' accounts was forced into the public eye after reporting from the Washington Post, which has done excellent work during the Trump presidency and has been tremendous competition for the Times. The <laughs> it's the truth. The lawyers for the two whistleblowers say there are other whistleblowers who they've met with. Multiple is the word they used this morning. We don't know more than that, but that means we are heading into a scenario that we have never seen before in terms of people talking about the sitting president. The president is handling his own rapid response effort on Twitter and on the South Lawn of the White House. Support for an impeachment effort has increased among voters, most polls show. Yet anyone who tells you that they know how this is going to end is not telling you the truth. They do not. But back to why I'm here. I know there is a lot of interest in and curiosity about how we do our jobs in an era where there is unfortunately no longer an agreed-upon fact set. I cover the White House primarily from a desk in midtown Manhattan or from my cell phone while driving my car, as I have since January 2017. It is all a million miles away from where I started in college. 
Until the Trump presidency, I had had a fairly traditional career. Uh, I fell into news reporting by accident, however. I never wanted to be a reporter. My father is a journalist, and he had been a foreign correspondent for the Times for 12 years. It did not interest me at all, and in part because I saw firsthand how hard it can be on families, which my children would happily tell you if they were here. Writing did interest me, though. Writing was always what I was interested in from the time I was a small child. I had studied fiction writing when I was at Sarah Lawrence College, which became an easy joke when I started working at the tabloids. Not a fair one, but an easy one. But the closest to news writing that I ever wanted to get at that point was at magazines, some women's magazines, some news magazines that I applied to, which preserved some of the original intent of what I wanted to do with my life, but was also a way to earn a living. So it was pretty bracing when I graduated Sarah Lawrence in 96 and had one interview after another and couldn't get a job. I had heard from a family friend about a copy kit opening at the New York Post. Now, the name of the job doesn't quite get it. It essentially means you're a clerk, but with the diminishing kid added on to ensure you don't get cocky. I started my career there as a clerk, New York Post, August 1996. The job entailed shuffling fax press releases to the city desk inbox, sorting mail for reporters, current and former. Jonathan Carl, who's now of ABC News, had been one of the reporters who had just left and whose mail I used to come upon. And it involved running copies of the page proofs of the next day's paper to various editors. But it also meant, if you wanted to, that once a week you were sent out on assignment as a general assignment reporter. Not all copy kids wanted to. I did want to. Now, I was born and raised in New York City, but as a reporter in training for a tabloid, I experienced it in a way that I never had before. I went to the parts of the city I had never seen. I talked to people I had never encountered in in my daily life. I spoke to a man on a hospital floor in a building I had found an entry to who had just lost his pregnant wife and one of his children in a car accident. I unfortunately reached the roommate of a subway-pushing victim before the police did, a not infrequent occurrence when you are working for a tabloid. I delivered the news of her friend's death to her. I talked to the wife of a bus driver who had skidded off of a highway on a holiday night during a drive to Atlantic City, leaving several people dead. It was Christmas Eve. And on the advice of a skilled general assignment reporter I had worked with, I would scan the eyes of bystanders crowded around a crime scene, looking for the telltale signs of a witness to it. At the same time, since the pay as a copy kid was quite small, I was working nights as a bartender. It was, simply put, some of the best training one could ever have for being a journalist, and not for the reasons that you're going to think. Your livelihood literally depends on the people you are serving drinks to, who you are talking to, who you are interacting with, and hopefully acting as a human toward. It taught me about dealing with people. I read somewhere recently a description of the skill of a bartender as being able to make conversation, and when that runs thin, asking a lot of questions of the person in front of them just to fill the time. So I learned to ask questions, even when it seemed like I had run out of things to ask. I had the luck of getting assigned by the Metro editor at the New York Post to work as an intern for Jack Newfield, who was a famous muckraking journalist whose 10 worst judges lists at the Village Voice set a tone for a type of accountability journalism, holding jurists whose records often escape notice or critical looks to the standards of the bench. Jack taught me lessons that shaped my career going forward, but two stand out today in the context of my current job. You cannot cover someone or something you hate, although Jack sometimes did, and you cannot give in to bullying from the powerful as you pursue a story, which he never did. He taught me the second one after we worked together on a 10 worst judges list at the New York Post. He got a call from a district attorney who he knew well, and that district attorney was concerned about one of the judges who was on our list of 10 worst. That judge had been favorable to the DA's cases over time, and the DA wanted to see if that person could be removed from our list. The DA warned Jack that he would, quote, lose all access to this office, unquote, if he persisted with the reporting. This was a new experience for me, and I was nervous when Jack told me about it. I asked him what we would do, and he said, quote, leave the judge in. You can't give in to that kind of intimidation. And we didn't. The judge stayed on the list. The DA in question cut Jack off for a while, but eventually came back around. And it taught me a key lesson. As bad as things seem in the moment, they usually calm down over time. Sources will start talking to you again, even if it takes a while. I became a full-time reporter in 1998, and I was sent to City Hall the next year. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. 
uh, there were fortunately not a number of me's running around. There were a lot of seasoned reporters who I got to watch and learn from. And learn I did. I tried to outwork my competitors and my own colleagues, responding to calls from sources at all hours of the night. I had a beeper because this was the pre-cell phone era. I discovered, uh, I met with anyone who was willing to get coffee with me. I discovered the almost fanatical devotion that reporters at the tabloids had to their respective papers during one of the great newspaper rivalries of all time, New York City in the 1990s. Rudy Giuliani was the mayor. Some of you might have seen him on TV lately. (laughs) And he would hold three press conferences a day, some days, often confrontational, but never, ever, ever fearful of facing reporters. It was invigorating to cover, and since he was my first experience covering a politician, I did not realize how rare he was. The current mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, does not hold three press conferences a day. The world changed on September 11, 2001. I was in Lower Manhattan when the second Twin Tower collapsed, and I ran up Church Street with a group of people away from the noise. I turned around because I couldn't run anymore, and I watched the second tower sway like this and then fall straight down, and it was the loudest thing I ever heard. I spent the next three years covering rebuilding of the World Trade Center site, which meant tracing a tangle of government agencies, all of which wanted a piece of the land and the process, and none of which wanted responsibility for the disappointment that a group of relatives of those who died were likely to have with whatever redesign plan they chose. There was an election that year in New York City that turned out completely differently than people had expected. It was the race to replace Rudy Giuliani, and at the time, it looked certain to be a Democrat named Mark Green. In New York City, the primary races are generally the real election day because the registration edge is so outweighed Democrats to Republicans. Mark Green was leading. But September 11th changed the political landscape. Giuliani's endorsement was suddenly valuable. His popularity had grown enormously after it was quite low prior to the attacks. And Mark Green flailed around, lobbing attacks and insults at Bloomberg that ended up hurting Green in the process. Bloomberg won by a relatively small margin, but it was historic for a Republican to win right after another Republican in a city where the registration, as I said, is overwhelmingly Democratic. It was an important reminder that all the punditing in the world doesn't necessarily show where voters actually are. I joined Politico in 2010 on the recommendation of an old friend, Ben Smith, who is now at BuzzFeed, and I tried to mine the contacts that I had made over a decade covering New York politics to establish myself as a national political reporter. And I struggled at it. I had difficulty adjusting my aperture from what made sense in New York to what would be of interest across the country, particularly working for a publication that was focused on the inside political game. But there were some moments of crossover, and they stand out to me now in retrospect. One came in February 2011, when I spoke to a political operative I had known for a long time named Roger Stone, a man with a, a frequent air of, myst- or of mystery about him, uh, and he was a close ally and on-and-off advisor to Donald Trump. He and I were talking about a potential Donald Trump campaign for president the following year. Now, Trump was seriously considering this at the time. I knew that other Trump advisors who I had known from New York politics for a long time were quietly helping Trump look at a campaign. I knew that he had consulted a number of people, including Kellyanne Conway, a Republican pollster I had known for years, as well as another pollster, John McLaughlin, who I had dealt with in New York. I knew from other attendees at these meetings that Roger Stone was in them. So at my editor's urging, I did an interview with Stone where he talked about how Trump would won if he decided to. Uh, I would urge you, if you have free time, to Google it on Politico. It, it Basically, everything he said about how Trump would run then held. He went on at length, and the piece ran with a big picture of Roger, front and center. Now, Stone made clear that he was not officially working for Trump and not speaking for him, but he did describe the contours of a campaign. The next day, I got an email from an assistant to Trump that said Stone wasn't advising him. Shortly after, I got a phone call from Trump's assistant, Rona Graff, who put me through to Trump. Trump got on the phone and said, Roger Stone doesn't speak speak for me. It was an early window into the disorienting sensation that has become familiar for journalists seeking to cover reality during the Trump presidency. 
Based on my interviews with other people, Roger Stone was telling me the truth about what was taking place. Donald Trump was not. Yet Trump was asking me to believe what he said instead of what I knew from my own work. Trump, of course, did not run that year. During Sweeps Week for The Apprentice, he announced that he would not begin a real campaign, which I am sure was a coincidence in timing. Four years later, I got a call from an aide to Trump, a young man named Sam Nunberg. You might also have seen him on TV periodically. By then, I was at the Times, the paper that Trump had always felt never gave him his due, but whose approval he had sought for years. Sam told me that Trump was going to declare on June 16th of that year, and they wanted me to break the news. No, I said in response. When Sam balked, I explained that I wasn't going to write a word about Trump until he actually ran because of all of the shenanigans in 2011 with considering not running, stoking birtherism, and then dropping out of the race. When Trump, I should note, stoked the birther conspiracies in 2011, he rose in the polls, and I think he learned something from that. In hindsight, not writing about him uh, declaring his candidacy might not have been the best call, but it was defendable. Trump had considered running in 2011 and 2000 and in the late 1980s, and he declined to actually declare a candidacy all three times. However, on this occasion, my gut was not particularly instructive or helpful because Trump obviously did run. He capitalized on endless airtime from cable networks who outdid one another to get him on their air. If one network wouldn't take him for a phone interview, he would find another one that would, ensuring that one, the, rejected one, the one that rejected him would not do so again in the future. And that was a trick that he had used at the New York tabloids for decades. In New York City during that period, the view of Trump was as a tabloid sensation and gossip page fixture, a real estate developer with a flair for self-promotion who had been through casino bankruptcies and two divorces, the details of which in one case he personally leaked to the tabloids himself. But outside of the five boroughs, I learned, and I learned slowly, the view of Trump was based not on our reporting and not on New York, but on his decade-plus on the series The Apprentice. Visiting Iowa to cover Trump rallies, I was told by voters that they planned to caucus for him. He was a self-made man, a successful business leader, an innovator, they said. Roger Stone, the longtime Trump advisor, had once warned me that the line between news and entertainment was not clear for people outside of this business. And he was exactly right. Those trips to Iowa were first-hand evidence of that. No matter how many times we included the context of Trump's actual business background and stories, it did not penetrate the already formed opinions that many, many, many voters had of watching him sitting in the high-backed leather chair on his show. Donald Trump's relationship with the truth was notoriously elastic when he was a real estate developer and reality TV star in New York City. We all wrote stories about doing, him doing things like claiming his wealth was bigger than it is or saying that he lives on the 66th floor of his high-rise when actually the number is lower than that, but he liked the way 66 sounded. In November 2015, Trump, whose rhetoric about Muslims and terrorism was a staple of his speeches during the campaign, gave an open-ended answer to a question from a reporter, for a reporter from Yahoo during a wide-ranging interview. The question, which was not the most responsible question because this was not something anyone was talking about at the time, was whether Trump would be willing to come up with anti-terror methods like, say, putting in place a registry of Muslims in the United States. Trump replied when the government was going to be, quote, looking at a lot of things, unquote. He left it open. I thought at the time that it was an important moment from the Republican candidate who was leading in the polls and who had gotten there by saying any number of incendiary things. So I pushed for us to do a story. I called Trump and told him that I wanted to try to understand what he was trying to say to give him the chance to clarify, say what he meant or what he didn't mean. He would only speak to me off the record, a request I honored, but which he broke the ground rules of the next day at a rally by telling people that he had spoken to me from the stage, thus lifting me from any off-the-record obligation. He said in that phone call that he, of course, hadn't been saying he wanted a registry. I asked him why he didn't just clear it up. He said he was about to speak in Dementon, South Carolina, and to watch for what he said there. I watched. He didn't raise the subject. And he wasn't asked about it. I texted an aide to the candidate and asked to please talk to him again. I was told he was done speaking for the day. 
So I wrote the story based off his public language, as he had left me no choice. But I made an imprecise word choice in the story. I wrote in the lead that Trump had made, quote-unquote, calls for such a registry, as opposed to being, quote-unquote, open to such a registry. It's not a meaningful distinction, but Trump and his critics found the opening that I had given them, and they seized on it. The next day, I found myself in the middle of an online swarm. Breitbart, the website that moved far from the mission its original founder had for it during the course of the last several years, wrote up a piece attacking me as an agent of Hillary Clinton. Trump tweeted a link to the piece and thanked Breitbart, saying it was, quote, so nice when media properly polices media, unquote. My Twitter mentions were suddenly a cesspool. Trump's campaign aides tweeted the Breitbart story themselves. Later that day, Trump attacked me, not by name, during his rally, the one where he mentioned that he had, quote-unquote, talked to the reporter who wrote the story. On Twitter, where Washington journalists, including myself, spend perhaps too much of our time, several reporters strained to give Trump the benefit of the doubt. He was a first-time candidate and maybe hadn't realized what he was walking into, they theorized. He might not have understood the question. He would no doubt clear it up in his next interview. He did not. His next interview was the following morning with George Stephanopoulos, and he kept it as muddy as it had been before. It became clear to people over time that that approach was a feature and not a bug for how Trump handles controversy. Leave things muddy, never apologize, never walk things back, never admit an error, and almost always punch harder when criticized. I continued monitoring every Trump rally and every interview, my internal radar blipping any time he said something new or contradicted himself. Sometimes that took place in the same sentence. And still does. When Trump had moved on to other targets and controversies, his fans remained behind, still poking at whatever had triggered him. And that is obviously still true today. Months later, Trump won the nomination and then the presidency. You are all familiar with that year and you do not need a rehash tonight. But it did remind me of moments during the final stages of the Bloomberg mayoral campaign in 2001, when public and internal polling indicated that he had momentum in a race that had been reshaped by outside factors, but people still didn't believe it until election night. In 2016, throughout the year, I told colleagues at various points that I thought Trump had a shot at winning. Clinton's numbers with white working-class voters in September 2016 foreshadowed problems for her a few short months later. The conventional wisdom insisted that Trump was dead after the Access Hollywood tape was revealed on October 7th, 2016. But the fact that two Republicans who withdrew their support for him were booed by their own voters suggested to me that people were misreading things. And I would suggest to all of you watching this impeachment inquiry play out, think of how he reacted that weekend. Think of what he did that weekend, which was invite Hillary Clinton's, excuse me, Bill Clinton's uh, uh, accusers of sexual misconduct to the debate in St. Louis two days later and made Hillary Clinton walk in front of them. It was the most brutal thing I had ever seen anybody do in politics. And it is what he does when he feels like he is wounded. I stayed on as a White House reporter covering Trump after he won, traveling to Washington on average once a week. Most of my work is still done from my home state of New York, where Trump Tower is still based and where a number of people from the Trump era still spend time. The president, however, has not changed most of his behaviors. He obviously still incites the swarms to attack reporters he doesn't like or stories he doesn't like with regularity. No president has ever liked their coverage that I'm aware of, but Trump frequently denounces us as quote-unquote enemies of the people, setting him apart from a long-standing tradition of presidents who recognize the constitutionally protected role of a free press in the U.S., and this is language that has emboldened and enabled despots and dictators elsewhere in the world. What Trump does with that language comes with a real degree of danger, in part for the obvious, but in part because his fans don't realize that some of this is a game for him and how much he truly has fed off of and enjoys the mainstream media attention. He still brags to his friends that he's on the front page of the Times more now than he ever was before he was elected, and they have told me they detect a note of pride in his voice. Not everything that Trump is doing is new or something unseen before in U.S. presidential politics, including his attempts to influence how the press does its job. Reporters cannot lose sight of that. He is extreme, but aspects of what he does are not unique. 
This president has thrown accelerant on the era of partisan polarization, for instance, but he by no means created it. The 1990s were a singular moment in the partisan shift during an era where Bill Clinton was president and Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. After that, there was an impeachment fight, a presidential election where the outcome went through the Supreme Court, a terrorist attack that killed more than 3,000 people in Lower Manhattan, Pennsylvania, and Washington, two brutal Middle East wars, uh, and the Great Recession. These are seismic events in the life of a nation. We did not arrive in this moment of history out of nowhere. The amount of noise that reporters are dealing with and that readers are consuming is at an all-time high, and the lack of actual basis in fact increasingly matters very little for members of political tribes who adhere to a norm that their leaders set regardless of evidence that contradicts it. People use that noise to try to fit journalists into a box, particularly in the echo chamber of Twitter and partisan websites. They also try to make us into a story, something journalists should try to avoid, she says as she stands here telling you her life story. But it is our job not to take the bait. Some days that is harder than others. People are getting increasingly deeply personal. We'll often use whatever information they have to get a rise out of us. It can get extremely uncomfortable, but we cannot let it get in our head. I had an editor at the New York Post who once cautioned me not to listen to complaints beyond making sure that you had heard someone's argument to not get too immersed in their noise. Quote, their problems are not our problems, he told me. And I say that to myself over and over these days. One of the facts of this era that has come into stark relief in the first couple of years of the Trump administration is the limits of institutions in this country. There is one entity whose mission is to serve as a check on executive power, and that is Congress. The GOP Congress generally chose not to play that role for Trump, whose actions in office, had they been committed by a president from the opposite party, would have prompted rounds of hearings, hearings the White House has repeatedly tried to deny committees access to witnesses for. The White House has come to believe, now that Democrats have taken over the House, that there are few consequences for keeping witnesses from testifying. In the court of public opinion, there's been minimal outrage about it. Uh, No sergeant-at-arms has come to arrest any member of the administration. And in terms of legal exposure by criminal referrals, DOJ is very unlikely to do anything. A Democratic strategist I know said to me the day after Trump was elected that the nation is about to discover how much of its system is based on norms, not laws, and he was right. Presidents sharing their tax returns over several decades was a norm, but not a law. Presidents divesting from personal business was a norm, but not a law. A press secretary holding a White House press briefing in the press briefing room was a norm, but far from a law, and so forth. And we are seeing those limits play out in a number of ways. In the last year, crucial issue of the first two years in office, the probe by the special counsel, Robert Mueller, concluded with a report to Congress and Mueller's own testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. How that testimony figures into House efforts to serve as a check on executive power still remains to be seen as this impeachment inquiry goes forward. In the last several weeks, you've seen a massive shift since the Ukrainian call was revealed You have seen Democrats who are very concerned about impeachment swing toward it. There remains, however, concern among Democratic leaders about the impact that impeachment will have uh, for Democrats in in swing districts. In the meantime, the massive Democratic presidential primary field has shrunk somewhat, and it's facing a crucial test period this fall. Right now, that race has generally featured three contenders at the top, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, and that order has remained unchanged even in the last few days. And they are all figuring out how to run against a president unlike any in modern history who is approaching his re-election campaign as a take-no-prisoners fight and who seems likely to grind through an impeachment vote the way he has grinded through almost everything else he's faced. For reporters, as the White House tries to make us into the opposition party, it is imperative for us not to allow that mindset to take hold because we are not but we are also not the property of the president's opponents or critics. And we are not prosecutors who have the ability to subpoena or bring charges. What has made this moment in time particularly distortive is that partisan debates are no no longer about opinions, but as I said earlier, facts themselves. We are facing instances of distorted or fabricated documents that are blended in with authentic ones. It is vital for us to take the time to determine what is real and what is not, even if it means we lose a scoop or a story. 
No one will remember who got certain stories right, but they certainly remember who got them wrong. I want to talk a bit about Trump personally. I've seen reporters say that his Twitter feed is a real-time window into his thinking. And sometimes that is true. The tweets that say treason, those are usually how he's feeling in those moments. Other times, the tweets are very canned. They are workshopped among staff and then posted by his digital director, Dan Scavino. I'll give you an example. My colleague Peter Baker and I had an interview with the president in the Oval Office in January. It was around the time that the president was upset because his intelligence chiefs had offered testimony before Congress that was at odds with things the president himself had said. He told us that his top, uh, his top intelligence officials had told him that their words were taken out of context. If you watch the testimony, it's clear they were not. But while we were in there with him in the Oval Office, he had an aide walk in pieces of paper that were blown up versions of the president's tweets that had just gone out a few minutes earlier. I laughed when we were handed the sheets of paper with the tweets showing the president, a picture of the president and his intelligence chiefs, which was intended to show that they had a good relationship, because they were sent as literally he was sitting there with us. This was someone else doing, pulling the strings. The issue was clear, clearly bothering him. It clearly was on his mind. But the whole thing was an important reminder that the Twitter persona the president has is sometimes just that, a persona. And that's what can be striking to people when they meet him, because he comes off different than the version that's been described in the press or that they see with the all-caps tweets. He does have a temper. He yells. He gets very angry and vents, as almost every staffer who's ever worked for him will tell you. And then he moves on very fast. It's like watching the Miami weather blow in and then blow out very quickly. Sometimes coverage of him makes it sound as if he's in a perpetual state of rage, and that might be partially true right now with what's happening with impeachment, but it usually is not so, and that has worked to his benefit when an exaggerated version of reality is presented. As I said earlier, Donald Trump has a famously casual relationship with the truth. He had never run for office before he ran for president, and he won his first time out of the gate. He often refers back to that, and I understand why, to explain why he doesn't listen to experts on certain issues. After all, experts warned him he couldn't get elected, and he did. But an expertise on certain issues is important. Instincts cannot govern all situations for a president. His inexperience with government means he doesn't always understand the implications of his comments or his actions and has not shown much interest in learning about them. He is over 70 years old, and he is not prone to change and he tends to try to please whatever crowd he is in front of, saying what they need to hear. That often makes it very hard for people to pin him down. On the other hand, sometimes he says things that are in keeping with the very few long-standing impulses he has had over time, mostly on trade and immigration. On trade policy, in the coming months, there is the open question as to whether the reworked version of NAFTA will get through a Congress that is investigating this president. I think the president is going to continue bringing it up and talking about it and trying to push for it. On the other hand, in general, I have found that over time, Donald Trump will say whatever he has to say to get through small increments of time. It is not strategic. It is not about a long-term goal, policy, or otherwise. And his refusal to be shamed has turned into one of his core political assets. He is now known as a president with a track record, and that would have changed the political landscape dramatically for him going forward, even without the impeachment inquiry. He has a base of support that will clearly never leave him, and we have seen that play out over and over. But they are not a majority of the country, or even close to it. It's worth remembering that President Trump was elected thanks to electoral college wins in a handful of states where there were two third-party candidates on the ballot. And yet, as strange as it may sound, I would not pretend to know how this election is going to turn out I would not pretend to know what things are going to look like four months from now. Unless something dramatic happens, Republicans in Congress have indicated the exception of a few cracks for Mitt Romney and maybe one or two other people, Susan Collins. They are standing with the president. They are telling a version of reality about this Ukraine phone call that does not comport with facts. On the Sunday news shows this morning, there was an abundant display of those kinds of comments. And these Republicans are not going to vote to remove him unless their voters start changing their views in all of their polling. So we are facing a scenario where a president who has been impeached in the House and acquitted in the Senate, both of which seem likely right now, stays and runs for re-election. And as strange as it may sound, despite all of that, I would not count him out for re-election. 
How things look now may not be how they look in a year, 10 months, nine months. All we can be sure of is that 2020 is going to make the nastiness of 2016 look like a high-minded debate of ideas. And with that, on that happy note, um, I would be happy to take any questions that you have. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism here at UC Berkeley, and it's my pleasure to welcome Maggie and to congratulate her on a lucid and enlightening talk. I have a bunch of your questions that uh, I have, that people here have collected, and my job is to, uh, is to confront you with them. Um, <laughs> put you on the other side of that. Okay. I, I have one question of my own, um, and, and uh, it's, it's a question I think that some of us, or many of us, would like to know, and that is, um, how worried should we be? About what? Well, about the White House. It, it, it isn't so much about the, uh, the content of policy, uh, it's the volatility, it's the unpredictability, it's the kind of sense that uh, governance is unmoored, uh, that every time there seems to be a grown-up who's wielding influence, uh, he or she is chased out of office. Um, there's a there's a sort of a um, one of the areas of confidence that has vanished is confidence in the overall stability and a kind of bottom line wisdom of of, of direction of the country, and and it worries us, worries many of us, and I just wonder what it looks like to you. I think it looks much as you just described, and but uh, without uh, weighing in on the emotion of it, but you know. He, he governs by chaos. He ran his business with chaos as the, the main component. Um, and we have seen the ghost in the machines of government keep, keep running things for quite some time. Um, I think the concern for any number of people is does that start to give way to, to, uh, to something that, that is not sustainable? Uh, and we just don't know. I mean, I, you know, he's... The one thing that I have observed with him over time is that when he is feeling wounded, he will act more erratic and he will lash out. And so given, I think you, you know, for those of you who follow him on Twitter, the last week shouldn't be a surprise to that, to that extent. Um, decisions are being made with very little process. What policy making process, there never really was a real process put in place to be clear. It has never functioned the way a typical White House has. Uh, but what existed before and what Priebus tried, the former first chief of staff tried to some extent to get in place, and John Kelly, the second chief of staff, had more success at. Mick Mulvaney, has, the current acting White House chief of staff, has done very little to keep up with, which is, um, which is policies and process. Um, this, is, this is a very whimsical presidency. Now, what the consequences are of that, um, I don't know. But it's it's not anything predictable, and therefore um, a certain number of different types of outcomes could take place. Are there moments when he's done things that struck you as surprisingly wise and farsighted? <laughs> I think that um, he has actually... So one example I would give is... Uh, engagement in the Middle East, where he really doesn't agree um, historically with these long-term military engagements. Um, but he has not rushed to do uh, a troop withdrawal, despite advertising that he was going to a bunch of times. He hasn't, and I think he has tended to listen to, as he would call them, his generals uh, more than people realize. I think that there are areas of government where he has made more cautious and careful choices I think it's more on the is issues like immigration, where he has thrown out orders to close the border or something like that. Um, obviously, that can't be done, but I think he's tried to test what government can do more in those scenarios. I want to thank the people here for these questions. There are some very insightful questions and some uh, somewhat um, provocative ones. Here, here's one. What is one thing people should understand about Trump but few do? 
Um, he's not stupid. And there, one of the, one of the um, caricatures of him is that he is. He's, uh, he is decidedly not stupid. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't read briefing books. I don't think I could point to the last book he did read, but he, but he is not dumb. And that's an area where people underestimate him a lot. Well, a, a similar question is, at, at, are there things that um, you are reporting about Trump, you and your colleagues are reporting, that don't seem to be getting through, that don't seem... There, there must be a measure of frustration. This is, the White House is covered, in my judgment, pretty well. Yeah, and, and, I think so. And, and it, by by everybody, know. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think universally, I think across the board, all of the newspapers and most of the networks are doing very good coverage. Well, I, cer- certainly the tradition of White House journalism is somewhat mixed in that access is a big issue, and you don't want to, you know, uh, soil the place where you sleep, and you have to see these people every day. So there's always been a, a sense that there's some limits to the palace coverage. But certainly within that tradition, this has been an unusually, I think. Uh, uh, aggressive uh, White House coverage, and yet you're still facing this kind of implacable and unmovable base of support and solid political constituency that doesn't seem to be listening. And at, at what, how do you factor that into your own work? How do you, I don't, do you think I don't, about your readers? I don't think our goal is to sway Donald Trump's voters to be against him. And I think that that's what that question always assumes that we should be doing. Um, I think that one of, the, one of the things he does that is, that is sinister is he knows that there's an enormous amount of distrust in the media that existed long before he got here. Um, and he uh, exploits that, and he tries to pour gas on it and make it worse. Um, but if, if our job is to lay out the facts, I think we've done a, a pretty good job of that. I don't think that... I think when people... I think when people talk about their frustrations, I was having this conversation with a friend today uh, who lives near here, that when people express frustration with the reporting, it's because they don't think, generally speaking, sometimes, and sometimes it's not this because of this, but often it has been because they feel like the reporting isn't moving people away from Trump, and that's, that's not our job. So. But you would think that at a certain point, the overall weight of what you're reporting would cause a reasonable person to have some doubts. Well, I think that the... Pe- <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think the people who are... Uh, I think that the people who are with him, generally speaking, are A, I think that the, the, the um, news consumption among voters is very different than it used to be, and it's very variegated, and people tend to be devoted to their one source of news, and that's it now. It's not you know, three networks or five networks or what have you, um, and people reading two papers. Um, and I think that for most of his voters, as I mentioned in my talk, um, I would not underestimate the degree to which the view of him from The Apprentice has just completely taken hold of, uh, in people's minds. And it's so when we write reality, um, the reality television version is is what they hear and stays with them, and they think that what we're writing can't be true. One of the uh, one of our audience members has asked a question about reporting on provable lies, and and whether uh, uh, whether we uh, serve the public well uh, by doing that. And and I guess this is a larger question that we it comes up in class when you're training journalists. Mm-hmm. What do you do about spreading falsity in order to debunk it? Mm. And have you, on balance, are you doing the public any favor because there are a certain number of people who hear the lie will believe the lie regardless of the evidence you present against it? So is there a point at which you're being played by continuing to trumpet what are uh, falsities, numbers of people trying to get in the country and, and, and their character, their criminal records, all of this mm-hmm. kind of thing, and simply to say, and then enabling somebody to come up and say, well, that's not true. That's, what do you do? You must have conversations about what to do about here he goes again. Do we, do we go ahead and report this knowing that we're giving greater currency to things that are false? So a couple of, a couple of things, and we have this conversation all the time, and it's an important one. Um, I think during the campaign, we and others did a disservice because we were doing too much just repeating what he was saying as opposed to making clear that it wasn't true. So I think that has shifted... 
But what it means is that the headlines and leads of stories now read in ways they never would have even a few years ago. It's the president falsely said X, Y, Z, which is not true. And it's packing a lot of information into the lead. Um, he also says so many things that aren't true that at a certain point you have to choose which ones you're, you're covering, um, which ones have actual consequence versus claiming that the, you know, the Apprentice was the top-rated show on NBC, which it wasn't, and which is something that he says all the time, but not something that I consider to be vital to the national interest to um, explain. So I think we end up in, in that scenario. Um, and then I think the other thing just relates a little bit to your first question, your, your earlier question. One of the things that I have encountered is I will talk to readers in other states who will say, you guys focus so much on lying and things like that. And I'll say, yes, because he's saying something that isn't true. And they'll say, but all politicians lie. And the degree to which people don't totally understand that what he is doing is just fundamentally different than what we have seen other politicians do, that is something that I think we all need to be better about presenting, but I don't know the answer to that. And what distinguishes... What distinguishes him and, and the volume from previous politicians? I have a question. There's a question here about uh, president and racism. Uh, this is a major issue among my students. Um, they are very mindful of the fact that the race, the climate of race relations in this country is one of the things that has demonstrably and fundamentally worsened under the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And he is repeatedly fueling this mm -hmm. in ways subtle and not so subtle. Um, he gets called out on it somewhat. Uh, it generally tend to be off-news pieces, analysis pieces, that are calling attention to an accumulation of comments that he's made. But there is a central messaging that is going on here that is extremely, I think, in my view, and to many people, extremely harmful. And I don't know that you and your colleagues in the White House have given it the kind of prominence that it has for a good many people in this country. And I'm just wondering, I, I'm sort of teeing it up without a specific question, but I want to put it out there because I think it's a good one. I think it's a fair question. I think I don't, and I don't have a great answer for it. I mean, I think that if you, uh, certainly the, the earliest coverage that I did of him on the campaign was about this very issue. Um, it was about his comments on race. It was about the demagoguery. Uh, I did a piece with a colleague um, who's now one of my editors, Pat Healy, um, in I think either October or November of 2015, but it was about a week, a week of, we, we analyzed every word he said that week, and we looked for repetition, and one of the rep themes of repetition was on race, and, um, and that, has, that has remained, whether it's language that's coded or not, in his case. Um, I think this is where being president, uh, uh, I'm going to say shields him, which isn't quite the, the word that I mean, but um, it means that there are so many other things to focus on that this doesn't quite get the attention that it, that it should, probably. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very fair point. Now, as somebody who's watched, watched Trump's career over a number of years, is this kind of racism something he learned as president, or was it simmering all along? Wasn't he a New York liberal no, once upon a time? No, he was never a New York liberal. He was... Um, what he was, was he was, he was a, somebody in the New York social scene, which is a little bit different. Um, he would do things like go to Studio 54 in the 70s. But he, um, you know, he grew up in the outer boroughs, which was in the outer boroughs in, in Queens, in, in you know, middle upper class Queens, which was a very different section of the world than, say, the Bronx or uh, Harlem or parts of Brooklyn. And, you know, he, his... One of his early claims to fame in New York was taking out an ad uh, about the Central Park Five, the, the five men of color who were accused of uh, raping and beating a jogger in Central Park um, in, in an incident that was called, described as a wilding event. And the, the headline was, Bring Back the Death Penalty. And he paid money to run this ad. And it was all playing on fears of these five men of color um, and uh, those five men who have been exonerated since certainly remember it. So I don't think any of this is new to him. And remember, one of his earliest 
um, you know, interactions with the government was being accused of a racist housing policy when uh, he and his father were landlords in New York City and taking government grants. So, uh, you know, I think I don't. You can look really hard and try to find ways in which Donald Trump is some different person. He's not really. This is who he has always been. One of the things that has become much more acute during his presidency was Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And his predation, the evidence of his predation from before, from the Dateline Hollywood t uh, tapes, the payoffs to the, uh, to the porn star, that kind of has accumulated at a time when this other movement was gaining a tremendous amount of traction. And I'm curious, looking into the 2020 campaign, whether his past, his, his shall we call it a predatory past, a predatory present, whether that is, you, you expect that to have a larger role in the uh, campaign, to be more of an issue than it was first time around? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the, the Me Too movement uh, grew in part, or really I think hit its peak in part, out of a backlash uh, to his election. Um, I think that women were, women who were upset about the accusations that had made against him and the fact that there didn't seem to be consequences for them since he got elected, I think that that helped fuel the anger and the bravery that we saw from women who, for instance, came forward about Harvey Weinstein um, and and other instances uh, involving other other well-known men. So I don't know that it's going to play more of a, mo a role than it did in, say, 2018, which was helping motivate a lot of women to the polls. Um, but I think unless there are new allegations made against him, I don't anticipate it's going to be central. It certainly doesn't seem to be coming up as a, to strengthen the argument for Elizabeth Warren's candidacy. The Me Too movement? Yeah, I'm just wondering I, how I mean, that is playing out politically. I don't think that, I mean, I think that no, I think that, I think Elizabeth Warren is running on a very specific set of policy ideals, and I think she's not running on a, um, on a particularly uh, a campaign that's focused on gender. And to talk about Me Too, I think, exclusively that way helps describe it that way. I'm curious why Trump is expending so much energy on Biden. And, and the, he's using a tremendous amount of capital. He's taking a tremendous number of risks. He's pushing hard and, and long and hard on this. Is it because they really are fearful that Biden is a potent candidate, uh, opponent? What's behind this? No, it's view? just, it's, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think that it started out, it started out because some of his advisors thought that Biden, this is months ago, thought Biden was the strongest candidate against him. Trump was actually convinced that he should be taking him on personally, which almost none of his advisors agreed with, because um, he wanted to do it, and because he thought that Biden was the one who he could make into a new version of Hillary Clinton. That's what he kept saying to people. He's Hillary as a man, is what he kept saying. And so, um, because he could paint him as a swamp creature, and you know, sort of, a, you know, he he himself could run an outsider-insider race better against Biden than against someone like Warren, who has the same message Trump had in 2016, which is the system is rigged. Um, now it's just basically they he can't he just can't stop punching at him uh, for a variety of factors, but one of which is to keep this Ukraine issue and everything was fixed in 2016, and my enemies are all against me uh, alive. His campaign is running a million dollars worth of ads against Biden in four early states, which is a little head-scratching because, as one person close to the campaign said to me, Biden is probably our weakest opponent right now, so he's the one we would rather have at this point. Mm -hmm. um, there's not always a ton of strategy that goes into this stuff that they do from the campaign. A lot of it is how Donald Trump wakes up feeling each day. I have a question here about Vice President Pence. Um, we don't see anything much about him. Um, he is the, he's the gray eminence. He's lurking around. He is obviously uh, a potential beneficiary of successful uh, uh, anti-Trump moves in the uh, Capitol Hill. What, is he taken seriously? Is he, uh, is he going to succeed Trump one way or the other? Is he a policy force? Do you ever see him? I don't know whether he's going to succeed Trump one way or the other. He is a policy force uh, in the sense that he's been a big proponent of, say, selling the USMCA, the reworked version of NAFTA. He serves as something of a liaison for the president on Capitol Hill. Um, he does a lot of things that are below the radar, and they're primarily below the radar because nobody wants to 
put their head up too high around Donald Trump because it gets cut off. So I think he's, and, and because look, Mike Pence owes his political future and certainly his political present to Donald Trump. If he, he was on his way to a, a potential defeat in the Indiana governor's re-election race <laughs> and Trump picked him as his VP uh, nominee. And so if, if Mike Pence actually has a shot of his own at the presidency, which he's long wanted, uh, it will be because he has cleaved to Donald Trump very aggressively. So now, all that said, let's just, you know, hypothesize that there's a world where Donald Trump wins re-election. Um, it's not clear to me that Pence would be the heir apparent either way. It's not clear to me that Trump is going to try to crown anyone, regardless. Um, so I think Pence is basically making the most he can of what he's got. Right now, I think he's he's swept up a bit uh, too much for his own comfort in this Ukraine call mess. Um, and I'm not sure how that's going to shake out yet. So, so could you imagine a scenario under which Trump would resign? I can imagine any scenario, right? I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can fantasy land almost anything here, but um, I, it's hard for me to see right now. Very hard. I have a question from the Sacramento Bee Statehouse reporter on advice for young political journalists who are female. That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, I stay off Twitter as my universal, just because you just end up saying things that you might regret saying. Um, I, no, I mean, I, I think that I think it's the it's the same as it is as it would be for anybody covering the White House. But I mean, I I tend to treat White House coverage the same way that I treated covering the city council when I was in New York. Um, the legislature is just a much larger city council. Um, get to know members, figure out what the factions are. Um, it's much harder, I think, in state houses now than it certainly was when, when I was coming up 20 years ago. Um, my advice is generally the same, whether the reporter is a man or a woman, which is just outwork everybody else, and that's usually the best way to do it. So I'm sort of curious. The, the Times, although it gets bashed for being liberal and is liberal, um, tries to play it pretty straight in coverage of major institutions. And, and I wonder, when you're at a dinner party with friends, um, are you, uh, I, I, I suppose, I'm, do you allow yourself free reign to use opinions? Do you vent and express opinions? Or do you try to restrain no. even the formation of I'm opinions? I'm the same way at a dinner party that I am here with you right now. So if you feel that that's forming or not forming an opinion, that's how I am. And you were going to be writing a book and then change your mind? Mm-hmm. And was that, did that have something to do with it impeding your, your coverage, you felt? Uh, the project was um, uh, changed after my co-author uh, was no longer going to be on it. And after that, I decided that I didn't want to go ahead with it for a variety of reasons. Um, but frankly, I'm so happy that I'm not writing a book right now because I don't... It's hard, it's, it's, it's hard to keep rewriting the ending, right? It's, and also, I, it just takes up too much mind share. And I think it... It's really hard to write a book on this White House because um, it does change the way people talk to you if they think that you're hoarding something for a book or, or not. So I'm, I'm very content and have my plate full. I, I, we have time, I think, for one more question. That is, this is an interesting one. What's the one question you would like audiences to ask you but they never do? Oh, God. Is, is, there something, <laughs> is there something there that you are surprised people are not more curious about? I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised people don't ask me why I use Twitter so often. That's the one thing that I'm surprised by, honestly, because I condemn it so often. So I'm surprised more people don't ask me, then why don't you just get off of it for good? So when you tweet, you're not edited, right? Nobody in the, you're, you're just out there. I'm just, you're flying just, solo. Just winging it, yeah. So here you have a, a, a tightly controlled, editorially disciplined news organization that you write for, and yet they unleash you for far more powerful channels of communication Boy, to say you, whatever you like. If they hear that you're saying this, my Twitter account is going to be locked up tomorrow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, look, they, I mean, they have, they have social media guidelines, and I, I really do try not to go outside of them. Um, but, uh, I mean, the problem, one of the problems with Twitter is that... Uh, for reporters is that sometimes we all tend to forget that we're not in some Slack chat or sitting in the, in the press room talking to each other. And, and 
the jokes that we would make to each other don't, we're making in front of, you're in public, everyone can see you, and they don't always play particularly well. So. Well, Maggie Haberman, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for your questions. Thank you very much.